Can you sail under the command of a pirate? Can you not? You don't listen to me. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Words are things. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Careful about calling people out of their names. I kept coming back to it, just trying to figure out where in the world we had gone so wrong that it had ended up here. Well, I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? What we've got here is... Failure to communicate. Some man you just can't read. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You don't tell your pappy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Oh, yeah. Well, you're not That's a powerful new phone. Are you not entertained? Is that why you are here? And welcome to the Pirate Professor Podcast. This is your captain speaking and your professor. Hey, how are you? So this is another good episode where I've got a chance to interview somebody else and talk to my friend and Seamus McGraw. It's for us a friend and mentor. Um... Seamus is one of those guys who he's got four books out right now. He's been, he's an old school journalist and he and I talk for a while about just sort of, he's the, he's kind of the guy that's um, cut from the same kind of cloth as uh, Hunter S. Thompson, which he considers uh, high praise. And, and I told him that, and then it turns out, uh, he sat at the Republican convention and uh, uh, for the first Bush term, uh, sitting beside Hunter Thompson. So, and he he talks a little bit about that. We'll we'll get to that in a little bit. So, if you're a Hunter Thompson fan, stay tuned for that. Um, for me, for right now around the cabin, it's been a good day. Uh, it's been a good weekend. The weather's been nice uh, today. It was particularly nice and. I had a lot of just downtime to try to figure things, or not figure things out, but just I had a lot of time to do things that um, has been evading me, and I've had some projects that I wanted to get done, specifically some creative projects. Um, got those done, got some stuff made that I want to do. Uh, I've been getting into leather working, and so I've been making leather um, like field journals to uh, carry around. Which is pretty cool. Uh, the other thing is, I made a. I've got this really cool. Uh, it's a fighting style knife. It's a uh, that I had 
special made. It's a handmade knife. Um, it's like a hunting knife, fixed blade. You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big knife, I guess, in the world of knives. It's not something you just sort of normally carry around. Anyway, um, when I bought it, it had a um, sheath that came with it, you know, to stick it in. And I just never really liked that thing. It just wasn't, just wasn't, it didn't do it for me. Uh, and so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm messing around with the leather. I'm gonna try to level up a little bit and see if I can do this. And you know what, I, I pulled it off. I actually made a pretty cool looking sheath for that thing over the last couple of days. Which is kind of a good, uh, good accomplishment. I guess it just feels like a good accomplishment. Um, and on that note, and this also gets into something that Seamus and I had talked about, it's, it's a fall is officially here. Like it's, I mean, it's technically fall, but it, you know, it feels like fall. And so I went out and I've got a, I've got a lot of land around the cabin. So I went out and just built myself a, I've got a fire pit out there. Um, so I just uh, built myself a, a fire this evening. And so I went out and sat by the fire for a while and just sort of reflected on it. And fire is one of these things that just sort of, um, it, it fire is something that kind of just causes me to have a bit of awe and wonder because I've never really figured out what it is. Like it's fire was considered one of the original elements by the early people. And, um, you know, what is it? You can't grab it. It can burn you and it consumes things. It turns them to ash. It also gives off light. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, a scientist probably will just shake their head and just like, idiot. But for me, like there's, there's very few things that seem to feel more natural than sitting outside by a fire. It just feels like that's a thing a human being should do. And I guess probably because we've evolved to do that. Like there's a sense of peace that you get from sitting by a fire um, the smell of the smoke, um, all of these, all of these things just sort of work together. And I was sitting out there this evening, kind of watching the sun go down and, uh, I can actually still see it from my window. So it's still flickering out there. So when I get done with this, I may go out there and, and drink a glass of wine and, and, uh, sit and watch the flames, uh, burn down to coals. But looking around and the leaves are starting to change, uh, color. And it's, you know, it's that annual reminder that a fall, um, I've talked about squares in the past that, you know, squares typically don't exist very much in the, in the natural world, but we do have a lot of circles and there's, you know, there's this cyclical thing, piece of life, um, and falls, you know, a time of, of, uh, dying and, so things let go, um, and then we go through this period of, you know, winter, which is, you know, effectively death. And then we come back in the spring for new life. Um, but it's in the fall that we say goodbye to those things. I don't, I don't know what I'm, where I'm getting at this, um. It just seemed to fit with Seamus in my conversation because one of the things that he was talking about is the need in this point in time to uh, for guys like him to sort of get out of the way for really for people like you, 
not so much you know people like me are kind of already sort of well entrenched in that world i guess we still have room for voice um but guys like him you know he's saying it's you know it's kind of a time for them to kind of step back and and let other voices in and so that's just a thing i've been thinking about since then um you know i made that leather stuff but you know even the leather stuff something has to die um for that to to be made and you know and even the paper i mean a tree has to die to make the paper things have to die actually you know um i'm not really here to talk about death i just say it's it's certain things just move out of the way to let room for new things in anyway so Seamus has a uh, he's from uh, oh I'll, I'll we'll get to all that but he's a he's a a friend he's a writer he's a an old school journalist and you're gonna find out he's just a crusty dude who's you know he holds no punches and if you're if you watch the YouTube video you 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 also see that he's chain smoking you know his his, uh, his own you know hand rolled cigarettes throughout this thing. Um, so yeah, go check it out on YouTube if you want to. But he is the author of End of Country, uh, Betting the Farm on the Drought, A Thirsty Land, and he has a new book coming out called From a Taller Tower, where he gets into uh, the mass shootings that's happen- that's um, plagued the United States for the past few decades. And he has a really interesting take on that that I have I've not experienced uh, somewhere else. And so we, we talk about that a little bit. So this is a good episode. I, th- I like to think they're all good episodes, but um, I'm like, I, Seamus is just one of those guys everybody should know. And it, at the end, you know, if you want to follow him and you want to give him a call, he gives that he gives out his phone number. So there's that. So um, with that being said, I guess the thing I need to do now is I'm going to transition this out to our my buddy Rob McCormick. And the song that seems to fit these days. The song that just seems to fit. Um, all right. Catch you on the flip side.
Gamblers were sitting drunk in their PJs, placing their bets and tipping the DJs. The bartenders kept serving, the ladies kept on dancing for tips. In all, seemed to notice or care about the angle of the ship. I said, hey, we're all going down, but we can all make it out. Right now, no one looked around, said anything. I went down to second class, they were gathering up all their gadgets. They had heard the alarms, they had tweeted, Facebook and blabbed it. They were charging their phones, uploading pics now Transferring them from the camera to the cloud They knew what was up, but man, they were heavily distracted I said, hey, we're all going down But we can still make it out if we leave right now No one looked around or said anything found a little girl who was crying I said it's gonna be okay just tell me who your parents are and we'll find them she said last time I checked they were up to the next said to go on without them and climb the higher decks save yourself they said we don't even speak the And they close and lock the cabin door Saying no one but Jesus could save them Said, hey, we're all going down But we might still make it out If we leave right now So she looked around She took my hand Well, we made it to the top of the lifeboats had already gone Ain't that just like America to send them out with nobody on So I took her in my arms and I said hold tight With a leap of faith we sailed into the night The taste of salt water filled up our noses Yeah, we turned around in time to see the big ship headed south. How the USS America in all of her glory headed straight down to the bottom of the seafloor. This captain, its crew, and sadly most of the passengers too. Just a few lifeboats hanging around, no one I said, hey, we can all go down But we can still survive if we start right now So we tied our boats together, we started a row 
When the sun was coming up, we discovered a brand new show. And we are officially recording. Seamus, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. How about you, Billy? I'm doing well. It's a lovely day down here on the farm at the cabin. So it's um, blue skies and like 80 degrees. It's kind of warm for what it's been the last few days, but it's good. Which actually, how, how's uh, you're in Eastern PA, right? Northeastern PA. Northeastern PA. Okay. Yep. I'm about, uh, you, you'd like it here, Billy. It, 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 it's reminiscent of the Ozarks. Is We're, it? We're uh, about an hour and a half from, uh, from New York. Yep. But I can literally walk 27 miles from the back of my house to the back of Gifford Pinchot's house and not cross a road if I choose to. It, so it's a wonderful location. That is kind of how it is out of the cabin. We've got I've got a national forest across the street from me or dirt road from me. So I can just I can just go out and walk and I've got a million acres of public land out there. Yep. yep. So it's good. Yep. Which reminds me, uh an interest that we share, though I currently am without one. Uh how's how's the motorcycle riding this time of year? First of all, how dare you be without one? I have a. It's one. <laughs> how late can you ride there? It's, it, uh, we, you know what? When I was younger, I didn't mind riding all year. You mm-hmm. know, um, we have one week here a year where it gets to be uh, zero and below, um, or had. Uh, we haven't had that in a couple of years. But the rest of the year, I, I, I kind of, I would ride year round. Um, I'm doing that less now um, just because I'm old. Um, but I, you know, I'll ride until uh, I'll ride until early December. Uh, and as long as there isn't snow, I'll ride. I would say, do, you, do you have a bottom temperature that you'll but, go out in? This stage of the game, I won't go out below freezing. Okay. okay? If it's if below 32, I won't go out because I just... I don't feel like wrestling with a bike on ice. <laughs> I mean, it's literally that. I, I don't blame you. Uh, yeah, when I first started riding, I was riding with a group of guys, and it was sort of like they were trying. We were we were trying to be as hardcore as we could, and we all had our you know little biker vests, and you know we said we were doing um, any weather, and you know, and there was those days you we we took a trip up to Eureka Springs one time, which is you know way up in the Ozarks, and. Uh, it was 26 degrees the entire trip uh-huh. and it was one of those you would grab the exhaust pipe warm your hand up <laughs> just you know grab the exhaust pipe till it got through the leather and you started to get hot and then you let go and then you just kind of alternate yeah. so yeah. i actually got frostbite doing that one time i it was i went out with it was it was in the teens i, I was much younger i was, it was in the teens i was riding from uh, wilkesbury pennsylvania to new york yep. and i forgot yep. gloves yeah. <laughs> dumbest damn thing i ever well no not by a long job but close yeah. <laughs> all right so uh i have like a, a whole list of stuff that i was going to oh, I, I have a very unorganized scratch pad of things i was going to talk to you about today uh first of all since you just lit up how's you just that's tobacco you grew correct no, this is not the tobacco I grew. I'm still curing most of that. I tried some the other day to see how it worked out, and it was yeah. surprisingly good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I did about uh, about fifty plants, 50. and um, 
it's the first time I tried. I did it because of the pandemic, because I figured, you know what, everything's going to shut down. We're, we're, we're on the eve of destruction. I'm not going to be able to get my, uh, my, my drum. So, you know, uh-huh. I'll raise some just to be on the safe side, but I actually enjoyed the hell out of it. It was a lot oh, of fun. It was a lot of fun. So you think it's going to be just thing you just do from now on, just grow it. Yeah, I think so. I think so because it's surprisingly good. It was, you know, it's a burly, but it's smoother than I had expected, and it's milder than I had. I expected this stuff like my grandfather used to smoke, which smell, you know, tasted like um, like hair clippings and dung, you know. <laughs> but like this stuff was actually not half bad. You know? All right, so here, here's where I just want to jump in. So, uh, and by the way, and something I figured out in the the first two of these I've done. There's probably like a two-second delay from when you're talking to when I'm talking, so sometimes we end up talking over the top of each other. Uh, but just so you know, that's there. You are one of these guys. Um, Johnny Sane first told me about you a few years ago. Uh, he was... Johnny's one of my heroes. He's such a good guy. He was, he was actually... So he... I met him because he was in my class and like, you know, he was this guy, you know, the philosophical hillbilly that he is. He just decided to go back and get a journalism degree. And so there's this dude, it's my age sitting in the back of the class with this goofy grin on his face the whole time. And, uh, and, and he, you know, over the course, we were talking about how he wanted to get back, get into writing professionally and, and get serious about it. And at some point during all of that, he was like, yeah, there's this guy I know. His name is Seamus, and he's he's invited me up to his place, and there's going to be some writers. And, and I'm like, he's like, I don't know if I should go. I was like, dude, if you've got somebody like that up there, go. Just go. Like, forget everything else. I had never met him. Yeah, I had never met him, though. He, I, I, you know, we had, we had, you know, exchanged on Facebook, and he'd shown me some stuff, and I thought it was damn good. Yeah. And, uh, we did this. We do this thing. You, you probably know this. Your, your your listeners don't. We did this thing up here called the Camp Kaczynski Annual Trade Fest, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we just invite pretty much anybody we knew, and we'd get end up with you know a hundred people up here. And I'd never met Johnny, and he packed up the family and drove seventeen hundred miles <laughs> to show up at my place, and it was just one of the most delightful visits I've ever had. It was great. It was wonderful. Yeah. So, and, and, yeah. And then he started talking about you and then I had, to, then we became friends on Facebook and then it's been, you know, you're just one of those guys that I really like to follow. Cause uh, one of it, one of the reasons is you help me k- kind of keep perspective on what's going on in the world. I guess you're probably the closest person I know that's kind of cut from the same cloth as Hunter Thompson. It's just, you, well, it's, I'm flattered to hear that. <laughs> it's that sort of, in, in newsrooms, you know, sometimes you, you just got that got one guy out there who's just sort of the take no prisoners and, you know, roll your own and let's just go do this. And, you know, that's the world that he was in. And that's that's the guy that you always are. And but the thing is, even though you've got really he strong- and I shared a seat, he and I shared a seat at the 1988 Republican Convention. Oh, well, dude, go ahead and tell that story because I'm, I'm not. Well, no, it was just by that point, by that point, he, he was kind of persona non grata with the with the Republicans. Yeah. And uh, I was nobody. And so they just stuck us up in the balcony at the 1988 Republican Convention, which was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, mixed Hunter S. Thompson, New Orleans and uh, the first Bush administration. And uh, you've you got a lot of colorful images. around there, <laughs> but. So what was that convention like, just sitting next to him? 
Well, he was—I mean, he—he he was funny as hell, and yeah. and really sharp, and really incisive. This is a little crude, but uh, my favorite image of the of the convention mm-hmm. was, was this. If you know New Orleans and you know Bourbon Street, mm-hmm. it's after it's after I believe it was the third night. Okay, and one of those barkers was out in front of one of the strip joints, you know, with the, with the pamphlets trying to get people in. And there were these two little old ladies who I actually recognized from the South Carolina delegation coming down Bourbon Street. Okay, and it's, I mean, it's got to be 90 degrees, and these women are dressed to the nines. You know, they are the typical, the typical South Carolina dames, you know, mm-hmm. and they're coming down and they're, they're right next to each other, and they've got to be in their 80s. And they're, they're, they're just aghast at everything they see around them on, on Bourbon Street. And as they come closer and closer to this strip bar, this they've got these big buttons on that say Bush, 1988. Okay, uh-huh. And the bar runs up to them. He turns around and goes, you like Bush? We got Bush. The look on their faces. <laughs> that will always be my, 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 my pride memory. Okay, from from that that particular convention, New Orleans is just one of those cities that re- has has always retained who it is. Like it's again, it doesn't uh-huh. care what anybody else thinks. It's going to be New Orleans. I always say there are two cities in the world that are exactly what everybody always told you they were, and they're on opposite ends uh-huh. of the spectrum. One is New Orleans; it is exactly what everybody always told you what it was, uh-huh. and the other is Jerusalem. And they are on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they are they are the only two places I've ever been that nobody ever exaggerated about. <laughs> I, I my first experience with real experience with New Orleans is I got sent down. I was I was newly hired, and I was I got sent down to this conference. Uh, I was in the French Quarter. It was in October, and you know I didn't really think much about it. I was just went down there, and um, turns out we were there over Halloween. And so we got down to the mm-hmm. conference and and honestly, I was I was pretty naive at this point in my life. And I was <laughs> like, I think I'll just go down to Bourbon Street tonight on Halloween. Mm-hmm. I, saw, I saw things that night I'll never ever unsee. And, <laughs> and I won't forget the next morning I woke up and I flipped on the news and they were looking, somebody had gotten killed that night, and they were and, and kid you not, they were looking for somebody who was dressed up as a beer bottle is the suspect <laughs> god bless this city it's just it is what yeah, it is when you, it, yeah first time you go to new orleans you're kind of surprised the confederacy of dunces is actually a documentary <laughs> <laughs> after katrina a lot of those you know hurricane katrina hit a lot of those folks ended up coming to arkansas uh we ended up feeling, yeah because that's when uh it was one of the things when Huckabee was governor, he kind of got he got tired of the Bush administration's lack of effort and sent a bunch of, uh, you know, National Guard C-130s and buses down there. And they legitimately filled up like every camp, church camp they had with people. And so, you know, food got a lot better here and the culture got a lot richer, uh, at least for yeah. a while. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a it was sort of an interesting uh, yeah, there's a there's a New Orleans diaspora that you know there, uh, Houston, mm-hmm. and uh, I tell you what, the food also got a hell of a lot better in Savannah too. Savannah's got uh, Savannah's kind of become sort of an echo of of old New Orleans too in a way that it never was. And so yeah, there was absolutely a Katrina diaspora. 
Well, let me, since we're kind of talking about tra national tragedies and whatnot, let's put something in context for me. You're somebody who has history. Uh, something I was thinking about, because, you know, I've been working on doing the border stuff for the past couple of years. And then, I love that stuff. Do what? I love the stuff you showed oh, me. Oh, yeah, thank it's you. Very, very, it's well, one of the things that sort of occurred to me, so um, talking to an editor, and we can talk about, you know, editors later, you know, with the first pitch, you know, it was like the response I got was, we don't need another book on the border, but we, and also by the time this thing comes around, Donald Trump, there's a very good chance Donald Trump will be out of office, you know, by the time this thing might hit the shelf. And I, I remember that hit pretty hard for me. Uh, but the other thing since that time is I've sort of recognized in the world that we live in right now, the border, the impeachment, all of these things seem to like have fallen into the background. Like it's like those things seem to have happened in an, another lifetime ago. And I don't think there's ever been a presidency or just a, an era of time, at least in my lifetime, where I can feel like that much stuff happened that was major. And then just a few months later, people seem to have forgotten it. Now, as somebody who's done this for a while, like put, put today's world into context. That's a very, that, that's a challenging question. And the reason it's a challenging question is, Billy, we've been through every one of these crises before. every single one mm -hmm. we've just never been through them all at once right before and so that what that does let me digress a little bit and in the new book um there's a chapter mm -hmm. uh called uh, the fog of war in peacetime mm -hmm. and what it's really about is trauma okay. and how trauma is trauma expands horizontally mm -hmm. through space okay it it expands from one person to the next across space but it also expands vertically through time mm -hmm. and what i mean is it's handed down from one generation to the next. This is something you and I have discussed on Facebook. There mm -hmm. is a uh, okay. there is a culture of trauma um, in various aspects of American culture. Uh, the trauma of slavery, the trauma of defeat for one side in the Civil War, uh, the trauma of the upheavals of the of the sixties and the seventies. Um, these traumas continue through time. And what ends up happening, I think, in a situation like this is you have so much, so many discrete mm -hmm. but interconnected traumas visiting us as a people at once that you simply, you bunk a bit mm -hmm. and you become focused on taking one step ahead of the next. Um, and I think that is collectively what's happening in America right now. It's not that we've forgotten these things. And what we'll do is what people in trauma always do, which is once we are through it, mm -hmm. and we will get through it, right. we will get through it. Once we're through it, 
we will weave together a narrative that if not, if it doesn't explain it all, mm -hmm. it at least turns around and gives it a form and a structure, which we can then begin to um, internalize, which we can then begin to um, use to respond to the crises that remain. And so, you know, I am um, as cynical as I may be at times, and I am. Mm -hmm. I am, at my core, a tremendously optimistic human being. I am, at my core, uh, a person who believes in the grand arc of history. Um, and I do believe that... The fact that all of these things have come together at the same time is going to produce a narrative, a story of us. We are the stories we tell about ourselves, and it's going to produce a story of us that allows us to do something that we haven't done in a very long time. Mm -hmm. The reason we're dealing right now with the crisis of, and I'm not going to hide my political orientation by any stretch of the imagination, the crisis of corruption mm -hmm. that we have in the White House right now. The reason we're dealing with the, uh, the kinds of um, really, really challenging racial issues Mm -hmm. that we're dealing with right now. And the reason we're dealing, frankly, with this battle between two, a kind of fundamentalism versus a kind of, um, a kind of enlightenment uh, sort of approach over issues of science, be it on climate or, or mm -hmm. the pandemic, is because we haven't addressed these things in the past. It's because every time we these have come up in the past, we've allowed we've 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 wanted to move on. Mm -hmm. We haven't called people to account. We haven't called ourselves to account. The narrative that emerges out of this, I think, just by virtue of the fact that it has become so critical. All of them, now, all of these unresolved issues now turning around and resurfacing at once. Um, I think that's going to force us once and for all. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of deferred maintenance that's happened as us on us mm -hmm. as a society, yeah. and that's you know, and one of the things that I've really noticed it's come from different perspectives is the weaponization of. Uh, of a lot of those issues, so those fault lines uh, that we haven't mm -hmm. addressed, you know, those fault lines have been weaponized in a way to, you know, divide and conquer, per se. Uh, commoditization of victimhood and grievance. That's what it ultimately comes down to. We have created, not only have we not resolved them, and we did not resolve them, frankly, for, um, I think, admirable reasons. Mm-hmm. The idea was each time we went through one of these one of these discrete crises, mm -hmm. we turned around and said, "Okay, well, in the interest of national healing, we're simply going to move on." 
Right. Okay. And I think, I think that was done often with the best of intentions. The problem is, is that it left these things unresolved. You're right. Deferred the maintenance. And more to the point, I think what it did is it left open the possibility for um, a cottage industry Mm -hmm. to grow up and fan these grievances make these grievances a these grievances this this uh this this sense of of individual uberalis um all of this stuff um it didn't just allow it to continue you're right it weaponized it it turned it into a commodity it turned it into something that we trade on Okay, it came. Uh, it became something that we play to. It became something that we uh, uh, that we use for advantage. It became almost a currency of the realm, and at the center of it mm-hmm. um, is a kind of uh, cultural narcissism, individual and collective, a kind of cultural narcissism that I, I think is deadly. I think is absolutely deadly. So, what do you think the way to resolve this? I mean. How does it, what does that look like? What does that process look like? Well, you mentioned history. It, uh, historically, when it's been done in the past, mm-hmm. it's been done with a sense of moral awakening. <clears throat> and that happens. Um, that also, okay, can become a destructive force. But I think you reach a point where you have a critical mass where you have enough people turning around and going no we are in we are in danger we cannot go through this again we will not go through this again right the way you turn around and 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 create out of that some kind of um some kind of action the first step to that is the story the first step to that is the narrative. The first step to that is the the grand arc of the of the tale that tells us this is who we are, this is where we have gotten, and this is how we got there. And I think you're now at a moment where things are so critical, where so many things have happened at once, and where the consequences are so obvious to at least two-thirds of the American people. Mm-hmm. We're ripe for that kind of narrative. That, and that's the first step. It's, that's I, the first step. It, when you talk about trauma, I just think about one of the things I misspoke and I told a student last one, one year, or yeah, it was a couple of years ago. And, I, I, and, I was, and you know, this is an 18, 19-year-old uh, student. And I was like, you know, the thing about your generation is you haven't... Um, encountered like a major crisis in your life yet um you haven't had your nine you haven't had you know because but when i missed it was because i had i didn't think their entire life had been growing up in the shadow of those things if they weren't they hadn't mm-hmm. adulthood when these things had happened but you know i've got students well you know they're 18 19 well up to you know 24 25 years old and their entire life has been dominated either by uh, war, economic issues, you know. So we had 2001 economic, we had 2005, which had Hurricane Katrina. Then we had 
the financial collapse in 2007, 2008, and then it just has kind of gone on and gone on and gone. What I didn't mm-hmm. think about for them was, you know, that they weren't encountering it as adults. They were encountering it as children. Um, but what happened is those tragedies or, or issues have really much shaped their entire life. And now as they've, they've hit adulthood, now we're where we are now. Uh, so, which leads me to believe, yeah, it's, you hit a point where you're like, enough's enough. I just sort of feel like you've got to make, you've got to make a change in some form or fashion, which I guess, you know, does lead to decisions for like populism where you either get like a, a um, moving more toward a Bernie Sanders type of candidate or a Donald Trump type of candidate, because you're looking, you're looking to do something that's going to break this cycle. I'm going to disagree with you slightly. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to disagree with you slightly for, for this reason. You have historically um, a generational handoff that takes place. Um, and it usually runs... Uh, and uh, it, it's it, it's they tend to be forty year cycles, okay? Um, historically, there or thereabouts. You had a delayed handoff to the generation that comes after mine, and, and I have a kind of a I'm fortunate to have a unique perspective on this, and, and the reason is because I've raised two sets of kids. Okay, I have an older daughter, uh, two older daughters, um, one who's in her mid-20s, one who's 30. Mm-hmm. And I have two younger children, um, one who just turned 19 and one who's about to turn 16. Okay. Now, those kids, you know, the, the two older kids, there is less of a generational difference between myself and them. Because though there were epical historical moments um, during the course of their lifetime, there was not really a wholesale change to the underpinning of the country Mm -hmm. Um, from the time that I was in my teens to the time that they were in their early 20s Um, or late teens and early 20s. 9-11. I believe was the trigger for a whole cascading series of events. Mm-hmm. Um, and they completely changed the game. Okay. Uh, you can draw a line from 9/11 to the election of Donald Trump. Okay. You can draw you can draw a line from those. And so my younger children grew up in a very different world even than my older children did. Okay, but they still have the same parent figure. Mm -hmm. They still have me. Right. Okay, and I'm of a generation. I mean, Jesus Christ, look at me. I am an old white man. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, and we have been unusually, historically reluctant um, to relinquish our authority. I'm not going to call it control because we haven't been in control in about two decades now, mm-hmm. but at least our authority. And we have not given, um, I think, that next generation 
a chance to rise to the moment. You know, you've heard me say this, Billy. I mean, one of the reasons that I've written my last book is precisely for that reason, because I think it's time for us all white guys to sit the hell down and shut the hell up and get out of the way, you know, and let that next generation rise to the occasion. I think they're capable of it. Now, the first step when you do that um, is always, when the first step, when when you begin to exercise authority, my generation did it, the next generation to some degree did it. I mean, look at the number of young people who did vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the number of people who have gone, have been attracted to a, uh, a, a populism on the left. The first step when you do that, when you, when you begin to turn around and say, I demand um, autonomy over the affairs of my generation, is you throw the furniture through the goddamn window. Uh-huh. That's the first thing you do. Right. Okay. That's not the last thing you do. That's not even the next thing you do. Okay. As you begin to turn around and and assume power and assume control, and as we begin to relinquish it, which I think is it's going to be wrested from our hands in about about three and a half weeks. Okay, finally. <laughs> like, um, once that happens, you begin to turn around and become become somewhat more practical. Yep. And. Uh, I'm not saying that it that a lot of the populism, particularly on the left, is impractical. It's not. Um, it may need to be packaged differently. It may need a different ma- a different uh, uh, a different uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. And it would also help if the avatar of it wasn't another old white guy. Right. But you know, that's what we got. It's the beginning. So right. All right. So. All of this, okay, everything that we've talked about up right now, my students are journalism students, and plus the other side of this, I'm just throwing these things out publicly, so I'm assuming um, other people in general public are going to watch and listen to these things. Um, Part of my objective is, one, to talk about the state of journalism in in the world we have today, Uh, two, what you were talking about, where it's the narrative that gets written now. And like, what's mm-hmm. and so my sort of the question is for my students. I'm asking on their behalf. Like, what's a young journalist to do these days? Um, you know, the state of it's easier to make more money in PR. It's easier to go in Instagram. I say it's easier, you know, and take pictures of you know whatever, and then, yeah. or you can do the hard work and learn how to write things. Um, Long form investigative journalism, a lot of the, the the stories that need to be written. So if you're a 20 year old, how do you get there? We've professionalized um, journalism. And I think that was um, I think that's had some some tremendous benefits. No question about it. What I mean professionalized is we've moved it away from what it was. All right. What it was when I got into it was basically a blue collar trade. Okay, it was um, it was a craft. It was um, you you made a story the same way you made a table, or the same way you uh, you work you you tore down a straight six, um, and you learned to do that by working with somebody who knew how to do that. 
I still believe that is an absolutely um, essential, not just skill. It, it, it's part of the lifeblood of this country. It's part of the lifeblood of this democracy. Okay. Now, if you're thinking you're going to get into journalism to get rich, go into PR. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're thinking you're going to go into journalism to be famous, go into PR. If you're motivated by the fact that you just enjoy the discussion, you're, you're driven to, to tell the story, just tell the story. Then go into go into journalism, and when I say go into journalism, there, you tried it. There are far fewer opportunities to do this now than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I started off by I when I got into journalism, Billy. All right, um, yeah, yeah, you had journalism schools and respected journalism schools, but for the most part, journalism was the French Foreign Legion. You know, you drifted into you drifted into journalism because you had failed at everything else, you know? mm-hmm. and you ended up at some small newspaper someplace where you started to learn the ethos of what it is to to be a to be a newspaper guy. You know? I was lucky because I ended up at a little paper on the Bay Shore of New Jersey, and I, I always. I, the guy ended up being being the best man at my third wedding um, was my editor at the time. And he had started this paper from scratch, from nothing, uh, in this, this kind of hard scrabble area. It used to be all fishermen and, and, and longshoremen along the Jersey Shore. Um, and I remember I came in, what we used to do, and this was, this was the best school you could possibly have. I would go into work. We were a weekly. Mm-hmm. I would go into work on uh, on uh, Monday morning at about nine o'clock, and I would work. We we delivered the paper to the press at about two o'clock in the morning on Wednesdays. Okay, and I would literally, Billy, most weeks work straight through from nine a.m. Um, on uh, on on Monday mm-hmm. to uh, about about two a.m. when I would put the flats in my car. And drive them forty miles to the press, okay, to have the paper uh, to have the paper printed. In those days, you used to be able to smoke in your office. I had a glass ashtray uh, next to my desk, and about once a month, the ashtray would explode from having had so many cigarettes in it. Okay, but I remember coming in one. Um, we, we would be off on Wednesday, and then we'd come back in on Thursday. And I remember coming. Our uh, we'd be off. Uh, off on Wednesday, and we come back in on Thursday, or on Wednesday. And I remember coming in uh, one Wednesday morning, and it was about nine o'clock. And my boss, Dave Thaler, was his name, was standing in the foyer of the paper, and the plate glass window, okay, mm-hmm. had been shattered by a brick. And there was glass all over the floor, and the brick on the floor. And he's just sitting there tapping the glass with his foot. He doesn't even look up when I walk in, all right? And he just he mutters. He says, you know what really pisses me off about this? And I said, what? He said that you didn't write anything this week to deserve this. And that 
if you can find yourself into an environment where you learn that part of the ethos, yep. um, then you've learned for everything else is commentary. Yeah, um, that's how you learn the newspaper business. Is you know, it possible because you affect people. Is it possible to have that kind of education in a newspaper today? I think so. I think so. It's harder. It's harder than it was. There are fewer newspapers. Yep. And the other thing too, okay, is that in lieu of newspapers, um, you do have um these endeavors. Uh, these virtual endeavors mm -hmm. that are going to develop their own ethos as they go on. Okay, they're going to develop their own uh, their own culture of get the story of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. Okay, they're going to develop their own ethos to get there. So it doesn't have to be the 1930s honey get me rewrite shit that I grew up on. Okay. There'll be something that's the equivalent of that. Um, it's harder, and it's harder to make a living doing it than it ever was. Um, I, you know, we were never paid well, but you know, we could at least we could we could at least buy a red hot beef and bean burrito at Seven Eleven, and and you know, make it make it to the next deadline. Um, it's going to be harder, but I still think it's possible. But more than just possible, I think it's essential. And I think the one thing I would say is to the degree possible um, for any young journalist, start local. Why is that? Start where you can, because you can feel the impact. Because you're writing about people you see. You're writing about people you know. You're talking about the, the struggles of, of people whose lives... They matter to you because they're part of your community. And once that becomes part of who you are, it becomes easier to translate that to a state scale or to a national scale or to even to an international scale. The only, the only difference, really, between a national story and a local one um, is the pronunciation of the names. Mm. Uh, the issues at the heart of all of these are all the same, and they're all, all about people. And the, the one thing that you have to do in all of those is understand that you're writing about people. You're not writing about issues. You're writing about people. And you're writing about people for people. And you have to write about it and talk about it in a way that appeals to what people are appealed to by. Yeah, the ideas matter. The ideas absolutely matter. The ideas are crucial. But you can't just talk to a person's head. You have to talk to their heart. And that's something that you learn when you're, uh, when you're working the local newspaper or when you're working the local site or when you're working the local radio station because these people are your people. And you start to understand that all people are your people. Sure. You asked me before we got... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. You asked me before we got started. I, I mentioned that one of the things that... Um, one of the skills that I thought was essential, mm -hmm. one of the things that I would, I would ask any young journalist to do is write obits. 
Okay. And the reason is simple. All right. I'm going to move because it's starting to rain. The reason is simple. Okay. It's because those are the most human stories there are. And they're filled with lies. Pretty lies we tell ourselves. Okay. I used to love sitting up late at night, that Wednesday night or that Tuesday night when we were putting the paper, finally putting the paper out and doing the obits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd, you'd get the story about the, you know, the baseball coach who died, you know, and they'd never talk. You knew the guy. Right. You knew the guy. Right. And you knew, okay, that, yeah, he was a wonderful coach and he cared about his kids and he cared about his coach, his kids. And you knew about his high school, uh, his high school successes. Okay, but what you never talked about was the fact that the guy spent his entire life regretting the fact that he went too fast around a turn and slammed into a telephone pole and blew his chance to ever make it to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that part of the story was missing. And so any story you ever took thereafter, that hole in that story. You knew it was there. And you were always looking to fill that in every story you told. You know, the wonderful woman, the, the wife and mother, the, the, the loyal, devoted wife, who was indeed a loyal and devoted wife, except for that one weekend in Vegas with her college friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think a little bit about that one weekend in Vegas with her college in every story you ever did. It's always about the loyal story, and it becomes something more than that. Alexa, stop. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, Alexa, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about some of the stuff that you've done. Um, Two books of yours that I've read is um, Betting the Farm on the Drought and then A Thirsty Land. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Mm -hmm. both of them talk a lot, have a lot to do with the place we both love, which is Texas. Mm-hmm. And neither one of us are from there. I, I've spent a lot of time there now, but I'm I'm definitely not a Texan, mm-hmm. as any Texan will tell me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, I was actually I was flipping through uh, a thirsty land this morning, and I was just and I was reminiscing about the uh, the bit on Corpus Christi Bay, uh, which is where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. At one point, when I first started going there, because my uh, I've got family there, and well, they started getting these notices in the mail like "Don't drink the water, don't drink the water," mm-hmm. and then you know, and that was because the, you know the drinking water had gotten polluted, you know. And now right. I have uh, successfully ridden out at least one hurricane uh, on my boat in that bay, and I've done sailing mm-hmm. out there, so it's a world I'm very familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. What made you decide to go to Texas to start working on stuff? And then kind of how did you end up there? Well, that's actually that's actually a funny story. And it, it, it tells you a little bit about how miserable this business is. Okay. 
I didn't decide to go to Texas. In fact, the first time I was ever in Texas, I was 19 years old making my first trip across country. And we had a buddy of mine, um, a woman from the Upper East Side uh, who was 45 years old at the time. I was 19. My friend was 18. She was 45. She spilled across the American panorama like a can of red paint. Um, And we ended up out in Palo Duro Canyon. Mm -hmm. And um, it got there late at night. And I was having a conversation with a guy in a Winnebago, a Texan in a Winnebago. Okay. Uh, I don't remember what the hell we were talking about. It was a lovely chat, right? And, you know, I bid him a good night. And I went home to, I went back to, to our campsite to cook. And I realized I had left my uh, can opener back in Missouri. All right. So I went back to the guy's Winnebago, knocked on the door. He was already inside at the point. Okay. To borrow a can opener. I have a can of Lasore peas in my hand. Mm-hmm. Door to the window flies open. Guy standing there in his boxer shorts, and he's got a pistol. Okay, that he is pointing in my direction. <laughs> what you want? <laughs> I was like, uh, well, I, I forgot my guy. I was just talking to you. I, I, I forgot my can opener. I mean, you could shoot the top off if you want. And the guy got recognized me and got really apologetic and started fishing around in the drawers. Yep. For uh, for a can opener, but never took the gun off me. <laughs> and it was like, now, oh, wait, wait, I got <laughs> I thought to myself, I thought, you know what? That's Texas. I am never going back. <laughs> like, I am simply never going back. So I write End uh, of Country. Uh-huh. And, and Random House did nothing to promote End of Country. That was the first book I had written. They had done nothing to promote it at all. And um, I was, what happened is I I ended up winning an award out in San Diego or something like that. And six months later, um, they call me up and they say, oh, we're so glad we finally found you. You won this award, the Green Prize. And, you know, we called Random House and they didn't know who you were. And I I started to bitch on Facebook. I mean, I just started to bitch on Facebook. And, um, Gianna Lamort at University of Texas Press, who had, for reasons that escaped me, been a, been a fan of, of End of Country, turned around and, and texted me and said, can we have your next book? And I was like, it's yours. I don't care what it is. It's uh-huh, yours. <laughs> and so I did betting farm for them. Mm-hmm. And I, I absolutely, that brought me into Texas. For the first time, literally since I was 19. And I started to wander around Texas. And much like you, Billy, I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with the contradictions. Mm -hmm. Um, I fell in love with the diversity of the place. Mm -hmm. Um, I came to realize that Texas, as much as Texans like to think of themselves as an independent republic, Mm -hmm. and as much as... um, the rest of us like to think of them as a state. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not really either. What it is, is an empire, mm-hmm. a collection of culturally and geographically um, distinct areas yep. held together by a myth, by the myth of the Texan. And I don't need to tell anybody what the myth of the Texan is. I mean, all I have to do is turn around and say Texan, and, and you conjure an image. We all conjure the same image of a Texan. What dawned on me 
was that when I go to Ireland uh-huh. or I go anywhere over okay, and I ask them to conjure a mythic American. It's Texan, isn't it? You know what they conjure for? They conjure a Texan. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So in a way, in a way, Texas, you and I may not be Texans, but Texas is us. Right. In a way that no other place in America really is. It's a microcosm. That's why I write about Texas. It's un- like Texas. Even in the new book, there's a lot. There's Texans a lot of Texas. Unapologetic about themselves. Like it's or mm-hmm. like we're proud of it. And if you don't like it, you know, go back to where mm-hmm. you're from because <laughs> actually <laughs> exactly. uh, and, and that's actually, you know, and that's one of the things I like about them because they're just mm-hmm. It's just sort of a no bullshit sort of thing. I mean, I say that there's lots of bullshit there, but it's, they don't care. It's just, this is who they are. (laughs) And right now, um, you know, I've got a good friend from Austin who's a firefighter and he's, you know, relocating to Corpus because too many Californians are moving to Austin. And, and, you know, and that's the thing that that's the other thing is like Texans are going to be like, I don't necessarily, I don't know. We don't like, we don't like this California influence, but so I don't know. That'll be that's the next great shift. Texas, I've pre- we've probably talked about this, but the, the thing, especially down on the border at Brownsville, is this weirdness of South Texas culture. You go right across the border. You're in Matamoros. You're in Mexico. It's also Brownsville is in one of the poorest counties in Texas. Yep. But then down on the coast, mm-hmm. you've got SpaceX you know, building, you know, Mars rockets. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many different things going on that absolutely don't seem to have anything connected with them, except that it's, it's Texas and we're going to do what we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And where you can, when you can turn around and be in the same state, all right, that has SpaceX recent reaching for the stars. And to sit down in uh, sit down in Presidio, okay, um, with Luis Amanderas, and having him spend half an afternoon telling me about how he made the adobe bricks on his lumber yard, mm-hmm. okay, um, and have those not be contradictory, yeah, have those not be contradictory, but part of a whole, um, is what makes the place. Not only reflective of America as a whole, mm-hmm. but also inspirational to it. Okay, also inspiration. You know, so I, I, I have now fallen so much in love with Texas that I'm trying to persuade my wife, who's from Australia and never wanted to go any place dry again, <laughs> <laughs> to move to Texas. <laughs> okay, if you, if you go to Texas, where do you want to go? I I love I, I love the area around, around basically from Terlingua to uh, to Presidio. That is my that's my favorite part. That's one of my favorite parts of the world. I don't mm-hmm. know my favorite part of Texas. No. I just love the river there. The thing the that's river. really interesting for me geographically is so because I'll, I'll I'll drive from Texarkana down the coast, basically straight down to Houston and then down to Corpus. Mm-hmm. From Texarkana to Houston, it's all East Texas. It's it's all things green in East Texas, and it just kind of feels like South Arkansas. But geographically, the land and the climate shifts from the north side of Houston to the south side of Houston. 
and you get yep. out on the south side yep. of Houston, and suddenly it's mesquite trees, palm trees, no yep. more, no more pine trees, no more. And it, you know, there's a little yep. phasing out of like you know live oaks, but in a real mm-hmm. short span, and it's you know it's just one side of the city versus the other. Exactly. Exactly. And, of course, yeah, yeah. You have to bear in mind that you know Houston is now the westernmost suburb of Atlanta. So I mean, it's like you know, <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's the other thing that amazes me about it is the change in topography. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and so it's 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 abrupt, I suppose, if you're looking at your odometer. Mm-hmm. But it still feels graceful. Mm-hmm. It still feels graceful, you know. It's it doesn't feel like it's it's not jarring. It's just there's a thing about it that just says I'm going through a transition. Oh, of course, right? You know, and right. you're there, and you're there. Mm. No, I've fallen in love with the place. I absolutely have fallen in love with the place. I, you know, I've fallen in love with pretty much every square inch of it, but that part in particular. It's the thing and i guess it'll bring us back to the modern age and then we can we can kind of segue into what you've been writing uh so i'm the selena memorial statue is i can see it from the back of my boat and back during the mm-hmm. summer they were having a it wasn't a trump rally per se but it was a trump rally um in front of the statue and then on the opposite side of the street was the counter protest um mm-hmm both sides because I, I I started to walk over there and then I saw it was there and then I just promptly went back because both sides had people in it with AR-15s. Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm-hmm. you've got four lanes of traffic, you're downtown, it's a, it's a busy area and we've got two different protest groups that are now carrying semi-automatic, you know, assault-style t- rifles. And I thought, yeah. It doesn't take long for this to go bad. You know, this takes one stupid person for this to get real bad real mm-hmm. fast. Yeah. So that being said, let's talk about what you've been writing. Cause I, I haven't seen it. I've just heard you talk about it. What what are you what are you doing mm-hmm. today? I'm sorry, I missed the last part of it. Uh so what are what are you writing these days? I've seen it. I mean, I've seen you talk about it, but I haven't actually, you know, I haven't read anything. Well, I think we kind of touched on it a little bit before. It's, what the book is, is it's called uh, From a Taller Tower. And um, it traces the history of mass public shootings, what we refer to as mass public shootings, uh, an epidemic, uh, a particular manifestation of the epidemic of gun violence. But it traces it from the tower at the University of Texas on August 1st, 1966. In one long arc, um, up to, but also beyond, um, the massacre at Las Vegas in 2007. And what I do in walking through that, um, first of all, I tell the stories um, through the eyes of people who survived them. Mm-hmm. through the eyes of people who investigated them um, in a couple of cases through the eyes of people who committed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about all the myths that we've created to explain these things away. And the reason I call it from the, from a taller tower 
is that I make the argument that what happened to the University of Texas on August 1st, 1966, was the rise of the modern mass public shooter. Mm -hmm. And all the myths that we've used to explain it away were stripped away, stripped away in Las Vegas. And it became nothing but a taller tower, more firepower, and more victims, which is what these things are really about. They thrive in, this is what we talked about before, a culture that has commoditized victimhood and grievance, that has become narcissistic to the point of sociopathy. Mm -hmm. This is all taking place. This is all taking place against the white noise of a culture that amplifies every one of those things, that amplifies victimhood, that amplifies uh, the sense of grievance, that amplifies the sense of narcissism. So that in that fog of what this culture has become, it becomes impossible to see these guys coming. Mm -hmm. And that's what the book is really about. You know, um, it, there's a moment in the book where I'm talking to a uh, guy who's about 40 now. When he was 18 years old, just about the time he turned 18, he committed a mass shooting at a uh, college in Massachusetts um, called Simon's Rock mm -hmm. in the early 1990s. This is okay. I'm having a conversation with the guy. And yeah, he's trying to tell me, uh, he's, he is, he, I, 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 the guy is, is saying what I think, what I certainly want to hear. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether he's being sincere or not. And as I, as I introduce him to you, I, I, I tell you how I evaluate him. I give you examples of how I evaluate him. Um, but I leave it to the reader to evaluate whether he is actually being sincere or not. Mm -hmm. But I asked him at one point, I said, he, you know, he had a, 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 an AK-47 knockoff, an SKS. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that kept him from killing more people was that the gun had misfired. Yeah. I asked him at one point, I said, would a good guy with a gun have stopped you? And again, I'll leave it to the reader to evaluate this answer. I don't believe he was trying to deflect responsibility, though. I will say that. Mm -hmm. um, I said, would a good guy with a gun have stopped you? He said, I thought I was the good guy with the gun. And I think that I think that is the um, that is the essence, I think, of, of what the new project is, is really about. It's uh, I'm, I'm I rarely say this. Um, I'm actually kind of proud of this one. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of proud of this one, both because of the way it approaches the, the storytelling, but uh, the, the, the story itself, but also because of elements of the story, yep. uh, of the way it's told. Yep. Um, this is something your journalism students may, may find interesting. Um, people get numb. 
to violence. Mm -hmm. People get numb to uh, graphic images of bloodshed. There is almost no, no violence in this book. Almost none. Um, there's only one of the mass shootings, and it doesn't even take place in the United States. It's the Christchurch Christ shooting mm -hmm. that, I, uh, that I actually go into detail about the shooting itself. When I deal with uh, Sandy Hook, for example, right, the, the massacre in Sandy Hook, um, the way I bring the reader in is a debriefing afterwards. And there's an officer, an officer, uh, a veteran officer, a member of one of the, uh, one of the four man units, mm -hmm. um, that they train as SWAT teams, uh, inter interdepartmental units that they train as SWAT teams and they're debriefing him. Yep. And he says, I took perimeter. I took the perimeter. He's not telling the truth. He's not telling the truth. And they ask him again. And he says, I took the perimeter. They know he's not telling the truth. But they also know that he's not lying to them. This cop, this veteran cop, this grown man who has trained and seen trained for this exactly this kind of situation mm -hmm. and who has seen things in the course of his life that would fell a lesser man was so overwhelmed by what he saw when he was one of the four man units that walked into the very first classroom that the killer walked into that he erased the memory yeah. and replaced it with a false memory. If you want to turn around and gauge the weight of the kind of atrocities that we're talking about without dwelling on the violence that we've become inured to, mm -hmm. that's how you tell that story. I was you in, tell that story. I was in Las like that. Vegas about a month after the Vegas shooting and I was at a, a conference. Um, it was a big Adobe conference, uh, Adobe software. And they threw in the, the, uh, was it the Wynn hotel? I'm trying to remember which hotel it was. Mm -hmm. It was, um, the Mandalay Bay. Was Mandalay, the Bay. One that, yeah. Mandalay Bay was the one. That's it. Heard. And he, like, there's a big banner over to the side of the, the hotel where the window had been broke out, where he'd been shooting from. Like, it was all, you know, it was like, mm -hmm. you know, we love Las Vegas or it, I don't remember what it said. Mm -hmm. The thing I remember walk, we went to this party one night that they had. Uh, big dance party kind of thing out there. And I could see that banner from where we were. Mm -hmm. And I, and I mm -hmm. remember, and you know, I've got a law enforcement background. And so what I remember thinking was, this is exactly the kind of thing. Cause it was a concert they were at, but I was, you know, it was a, there were several thousand people at this thing. It was, and I was like, mm -hmm. and I just remember thinking I'm in range. Mm -hmm. And I just sort mm -hmm. of, it, you know, and I'm I'm trying to be have a good time, but at the same time, there's this weight of this thing, like, you know, and it's forever. I don't know if it's forever, but at least at that moment, I'm like, this is a shadow that's just going to hang here for a while. It's just it's a shadow. That, it's what I was talking about before about trauma. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, the trauma radiates out. 
Um, I guess a year ago, April, there was a shooting at a synagogue in Southern California. Okay. Um, Powell. Um, only one person was killed, so it won't count um, in our uh, our kind of grim definition of mass public shootings. But a friend of mine, an old friend of mine, who I had not seen face-to-face in 30 years, reached out to me. Uh, she knew I had been writing the book, but that wasn't why she reached out to me. She reached out to me because she had just watched her best friend die on the floor of the synagogue. Okay, and so... This trauma that happened in San Diego was transmitted to me and it will be transmitted down generations. The trauma of what happened in Las Vegas, hundreds shot, Mm -hmm. will be transmitted down generations. And unless we turn around and find a way of addressing that trauma, that assault on the, the, what, what um, uh, Richard Freeman refers to as the national limbic system. Mm-hmm. Unless we begin to address that, um, we're never going to stop that trauma. And we're never going to stop the seeds that allow these sorts of things to continue to develop. You know, mm-hmm. um, In fact, the trauma is one of the things that provokes these things. You know, you look at the, uh, the Amish school shooting, um, in um, in Pennsylvania, back in 2007, a guy uh, murdered in a school, in an Amish school, mm-hmm. um, ten only girls. He separated, he, he let the boys go, and he and he executed the girls because he wanted to get even with God for some reason. Um, the, the loss of one of his own children, and so he executed them. Okay. There was a book written um, by a couple of guys out of Elizabethtown College, a few guys out of Elizabethtown College, called Amish Grace, which focused on the Amish forgiveness, um, which is not like everybody else's forgiveness. It's a, it's a different uh, it's a different species of theological event. Mm-hmm. Okay, but this was a very tender and um, respectful mm-hmm. book. Okay, um, that dwelled not on the violence. When Sandy Hook happened, one of the few actual hardcover, hard hard copy books that they found in um, that killer's home was Amish Grace. Really, the question was why. And the answer to that, I think, um, and I talk to people who've come to the same conclusion in the book, is this wasn't his list of mass killers. This wasn't his aspirational, I want to be like them. Mm -hmm. This was a book that was really about pain, about a community in terrible pain. And that became a benchmark for that killer to inflict more pain. To inflict more pain than the killer at the Amish school had. If you have a culture that has as its white noise so much 
violence, mm-hmm. narcissism, and the quest for fame. That a monster who would do something like that is not readily apparent to all of us. Right. Doesn't stand out in a way that we could see him coming a mile away. Right. That's quite an indictment of our culture. Okay, so I'm, I'm torn between two, two questions. There's a statement and a question. I'll jump to one I want to ask you about how you, and I'll ask this second after I say something else, um, about how you approach writing about this without it turning into tragedy porn. Um, the, but the first is, is the personal story, and I shared it with you probably a, a year ago, um, how I ended up with an AK-47. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend of mine reach out, uh, for the people at home who don't know this story, I had a friend of mine reach out um, with an AK-47 for sale. And they were they're trying to sell it quickly um, because the backstory is their 16-year-old son had purchased this thing from some guy on Facebook. Um, but what made it worse was the way he got the money to purchase it. He was working at a, his job and he stole money from his employer to end up paying you know, for this gun. And his employer caught him. And so now it was, we have a 16-year-old with an AK-47 and his employer is threatening to send him to jail. Um, and they were looking for somebody who could just unload it on. Not Well, that was a bad way to say that. Um, they were looking for someone to buy it off of him or, so they could, you know, get themselves out of this bind. So I, I did. And uh, the thing that disturbed me as much as that did is the... Uh, it would jam up. It was because, and then I, I pulled it apart and realized somebody had been messing with, the, you know, the uh, trigger mechanisms. And you know, and I was like, oh, someone who didn't know what they were doing were trying to convert this thing into a, to a fully automatic from a semi-automatic. And you know, I took it to a gunsmith, had him fix it, and did exactly what you know. I think everyone, if you've got something like this, I unloaded it and stuck it in a safe, and it's, it hasn't come out since. Um, and but I just remember thinking, oh, this is how this happens. Like, this is how a 16-year-old ends up with something like that. But, you know, at the same time, I see people buying them things for their kids for Christmas now. Um, yeah. So you've got that culture, which is a very different gun culture than I grew up with, which was more right. deer, deer hunting. And you certainly, nobody uh-huh. could get a handgun um, because it was, it was, you were actually kind of looked down upon if you carried a handgun. Um, you're like, oh, you're not tough enough to, you know, your fists aren't enough, you know, you've got to go to something like that. Um, you know, and I remember that being the attitude. So that go into all that, because I just wanted to get that in there. Um, but the other thing that I hit with the border reporting that I know you've hit with this is you just, you, you encounter so many tragic stories and Uh after a while, one tragic story seems to bleed into the next tragic story. This family's traumatized for this reason. And then after uh-huh. a while, you put a hundred of those together, it just sort of, again, it becomes a white noise of tragedy. And so, uh-huh. and how do you, from a writing perspective, like how do you tackle that um, without it turning into tragedy porn? A couple of ways. A couple of ways. One of the things that you do is you focus on the stories that illustrate a different aspect of different aspects of a particular problem. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so you end up, the, your, your primary goal is to, is to, at that point, is to turn around and make it not repetitive. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing is to turn around and not go in the direction that your reader is automatically going to expect you to go. Okay. When I talk about the Amish massacre, for example, mm-hmm. okay, um, the I want to give you an insight into the culture. Mm-hmm. I want to give you an insight into the mind, obviously, of the killer to the degree that I can. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I want to do is I want to make it um, emotionally accessible to the reader without making it overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or without turning around and making it familiar enough that they shut down. So I tell that story through the words of the first cop on the scene Mm -hmm. um, who um, after it's all over Mm -hmm. won't tell his wife what happened but simply goes up to his daughter's room okay who's about two at the time takes her out of her bed and just sits there in a rocking chair with her for 45 minutes in that piece, then we can begin to explore out without dwelling on the pornographic aspects of it. Okay. Now, after, um, there are times when you have to use other tricks, quite mm-hmm. frankly. All right. Um, there is a chapter in the book where I do go into some violence, um, and it's grotesque. Um, it's the, the massacre of Christchurch in, in New Zealand. And I use that to kind of examine it. it the, the, the chapter is called "Tis not only my inky cloak. It's, it's about how these guys wrap themselves into idea around with ideologies. But the reality is they're just killers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And these are just things to give them status. But that is a very, very, very disturbing chapter. It is a very disturbing chapter. And so to get out of that, all right, um, there is the next chapter um, looks at Columbine, the Columbine shooters. Mm -hmm. It looks at the shooter at Simon's Rock, who I just told you about a moment ago. But it begins with a grotesquely comic image. Um, of two old jokers, one of them a uh, a uh, a ridiculous clown who has a tattoo of Richard Nixon um, on his back, um, an absolute clown. Okay, a guy who, as I described them, you know, looks like he's perpetually on his way to a dinner party at Dr. Frankenfurter's castle where uh, meatloaf will be served. Mm -hmm. And he's with a uh, kind of squeaky, gravelly voiced uh, pod show and and radio talk show host from Austin, Texas, um, who has earned the everlasting enmity. And they're at a shooting match. Mm-hmm. And they, I just depict them as total Shakespearean clowns um, as they shoot at these targets and turn around and squeal things like right in the head. I cut from that immediately into one of the tapes that, that was preserved of the Columbine shooters. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, saying, doing exactly the same thing um, in a park outside of uh, not far from their homes in the Rockies. Right. Saying word for word, word for word. The same thing these clowns said on the tape in the shooting match. So I use not only to illustrate the point that I'm making, Mm -hmm. okay, but also to bring in literally, literally Elizabethan clowns to reinforce the, the, uh, the, 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 the narrative, but at the same time provide some levity. At the same time, give the reader a uh, a bit of relief. They'll feel guilty about the relief at the end of that part, but at least gives them some relief. You understand what I'm saying? Yep, I do. So what would you say about a, a pretty common strategy in warfare is you dehumanize your opponent, your enemy. Um, mm-hmm. And that is something I've seen definitely happen in the context of uh, this, a lot of these shooters, but again, also, also within the context of a lot of American dialogue, political dialogue these days, is mm-hmm. you're no longer a per you you stop being a person, you become a thing, and you're again you're a thing of of that we despise. Um, you know, I remember I remember walking through. I don't know where I was, but there was a TV with Fox News playing one day, and it had Alan West was on. And mm-hmm. he made the. I remember him referring to Democrats as the enemy, uh, as enemies. Mm-hmm. And and that was that was a shift from that was the first time I'd ever heard the word enemy actually used as opposed to like my mm-hmm. opponent or something like, or you know our friends on the other side of the, of the aisle. And, and I remember thinking, that's civil war language. Like that's, that's not, that's not political dialogue. That's, you know, something far mm-hmm. darker. It's sectarian, it's, secta- it's sectarian language. It's the kind of stuff, it, it, it's sectarian, it's gang. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's the kind of stuff you hear when you're in a, uh, when, when, when you're in the Middle East, it's the kind of stuff that you hear, uh, you hear when you're uh, in, not as much as, as you did 20 years ago, but we right. did used to hear right. among American gangs. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's that's only part of it. Part of it, obviously you turn around and you get a guy like the, uh, the truck driver who shot up uh, the, uh, the tree of life synagogue in uh, Mr. Rogers old neighborhood in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And sure. He cited, um, all of the uh, the anti-immigrant um, nonsense, mm-hmm. but the most telling thing about him was this use of a phrase. This is a guy who never served a day in uniform. Yep. Okay. Um, his use of the phrase throughout his life. Um, I'm going in. Uh-huh. And as if he were, you know, the 82nd Airborne getting ready to, uh, you know, to, to jump behind enemy lines on D-Day when he's, you know, basically going out to deliver pizzas for somebody. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then to turn around and massacre people at a synagogue. It's not just that that rhetoric is out there and that that rhetoric has become pervasive. Mm-hmm. It's that it gives these guys an opportunity to wrap themselves in that. I, I make the point when I look at this guy, for example, that um, if you turn around and break out this guy who was, you know, 
in his late 40s and a guy who was a few years older on the other side of the state mm-hmm. um, who used very much the same kind of language, had very much the same kind of life history and shot up a uh, municipal building okay, during a meeting, killing three people. Yep. Um, because they had told him to clean up the junk in his yard. Mm-hmm. The actual motivation is really not that different. The actual motivation is a, a sense of grievance, a sense of victimhood, a sense of self-aggrandizement. What they choose to wrap it in what they choose to turn around and, and and use as the excuse to give them even greater standing in their pitiful little lives. That's now stuff we buy off the rack. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about the commoditization of grievance and the commoditization of rage and the commoditization of victimhood, um, that they've become cottage industries. These guys can just buy, can just literally take the costumes off the rack now. Um, but what they are at the core, mm-hmm. what they are at the core, is selfish, narcissistic, murderous losers. They're not they, the guy who turned around and and went on a ten mile long shooting spree um, in Odessa and Midland mm-hmm. was probably a real racist. But that's not why he was a killer. He was a killer because he was a fucking killer. (laughs) He was a killer because he was a killer. Uh Uh-huh. He was a racist. Right. Because, of course, that kind of stupid, useless creature would be drawn to that kind of stupid, useless creature philosophy of course he would be drawn to it but that's not what defines him he was that regardless <laughs> saying he would have he would have been that he was had the fairest star in the firmament twinkled on his bastardizing uh-huh. see this is where you're getting in the hunter thompson mode see i can feel it i can feel that which brings me to a question um Someone who has really strong opinions, but is also has a lot of um, faith in the in the journalistic process of of keeping your bias in check. How do you take what you do and your your own personal beliefs, and when you sit down to write a story, make sure you're telling the real story and not just the version of the story you want to hear? Or okay, what, there's, what there's, right? there's, all right. I try. Here's the thing. For most of my career, Billy. Um, I did everything in my power um, to keep my opinions out of my work. Mm-hmm. It was only when I started writing magazine stuff and book stuff um, where that sort of thing was encouraged um, that I even became a presence in my own work as a general rule. But now here's the thing, and this, this matters. I still try to be as rigorously accurate as I can, which means that I constantly have to challenge my suppositions, which means that I have constantly have to, and I have to represent the alternative point of view as accurately as I humanly can. Now, I am aware 
of many of my biases. Mm -hmm. I am aware of many of my prejudices. I am aware of many of my uh, preconceptions. I am not aware of all of them. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons that I am as a character, as present as I am in my books, is so that the reader may be able to see prejudices, preconceptions, um, and predilections that I'm not aware of. Mm -hmm. I try to be as upfront and honest about who I am as I'm exploring this. So the reader can't only judge the, can't judge not just the, the answers to the questions that I pose, but the questions that I pose in the first place. Um, to me, that's as close as I can possibly get. I cannot be objective. No one can. Right. Okay, we can try, but it's an ideal. It's like opera. You're never going to get it perfect. Right. Right. Um, but what you can do is, and, and the other, there's another reason I do that, by the way. And again, this is something for your for your students if they, they move into this kind of writing. Um, you want the, you want your reader to be able to evaluate the writer. You want your reader to be able to evaluate where you're coming from, what you've brought to it, what you asked, what you didn't ask. You want them to be able to do that so they can honestly evaluate the information you're, you're presenting. But you also have to get them to come along with you. Mm -hmm. okay? You also have to get them to come along with you. And people do not want to be lectured to. Right. They do not want to be talked down to. You know, as, as yeah, they, they do not want some, some pompous old white guy all right, preaching at them. Every one of my books contains um, a character um, who is just a complete screw up. Okay, just just a, just everything he touches turns to shit. I mean, it's just you know he tries. He's well meaning. He tries, mm -hmm. but you can see him screwing up as you go along. Okay, mm -hmm. and because of that, the reader. The reader takes pity on the writer in that case. The reader takes pity on the narrator in that case and comes along with them and also is willing to correct them mm -hmm. as they go along. Okay. Um, and I like I've been blessed by having a complete screw up at my disposal. Um, it just happens to be me. You know, <laughs> so it's like I have that at my disposal and so I'm able to use it. Uh, here's the one other aspect of it. Uh-huh. And I don't know if this is helpful to, to your students either, but one of the things that um, I learned in the first book was that um, I always tell this, this story this way. When, you know, um, when I was in college, for the one year that I was in college before they politely asked me to leave, um, if I had to read a book, um, I really didn't like. Mm -hmm. There were three guys in a bar in South Wilkesboro who knew about it. We don't live in that world anymore. Yeah. Okay. We don't live in that world anymore. A book is not the end of a process. A magazine article, a newspaper article is not the end of a process. Once upon a time, it was. The, yeah, the, the most you could expect was a letter to the editor, you know, mm -hmm. a stern, certainly worded letter to the editor. Mm -hmm. Now, it's the beginning of an ongoing conversation. 
Yep. And that's the other thing I think that is important to remember is that nothing that you put down on paper is ever the last word. It's never the last, it's never the end of a conversation. It's always the beginning of one. All right. So to me, actually, that's a question. What are you reading these days? Or what, what, do you, or, or what do you think my students should be reading? What's some conversations that would give them a uh, good insight of things? Uh, you know, I'm always reluctant um, to tell people specific things to read. Right now, I'm reading Woodward's book, okay? Mm -hmm. Which, uh, yeah, I, as, I, as I said, I am always, I, I am always in utter awe of his meticulous attention to detail, mm -hmm. but the guy can't read it all. As, as Dennis Hamill said about the New York Times, it's like reading your lease. Um, but I'm not going to tell you, um, I'm not, I'm not going to turn around and, and cite particular books. Although um, I did really enjoy the, uh, the, the book on Sam cult because mm -hmm. I thought that touched on some, some larger cultural, uh, some larger cultural issues. Read history. Mm -hmm. Read history. Okay. Read recent history. Um, read books that put people first. But also, don't just write them. Pick up your local newspaper and read the obits. Mm -hmm. And read between the lines. Read between the lines. Let me ask you, it's kind of following up on the Woodward book, um, in your own research, when do you decide that you've actually researched enough? Like when, when's like, okay, this is, this is enough to write something down. It's not a decision. It's an epiphany. Huh? Um, it, it's an epiphany every time. No, no project I have ever worked on ever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, has, resembled in any way shape or form what i thought it was going to be when i went in mm -hmm. okay in every single book there's a conversation there's a conversation that happens between and i don't do interviews uh, my when i uh, when i interview somebody mm -hmm. it's kind of like yeah it's it's two guys sitting there two people or three people sitting around talking okay but there's always one moment that I walk out of one of these conversations and I go, there it is. Mm -hmm. There it is. Because I've already thought it all through and not even, yeah, I mean, I've, I've taken notes. I've, I've, I've done the hard work and the work is hard because what, what I do is every, inter, every, every piece of research goes into a file. Everything I read goes into a file, but every single word that's spoken and I end up with, yeah, 5,000, 6,000 pages of notes mm -hmm. on a book, okay? Um, every single word is recorded, um, and so I hear it the first time, and then I transcribe it by hand, mm -hmm. so I hear it uh, again, mm -hmm. okay? And then I hear it again, or read it again, when I decide to use it. And what happens is all that stuff sort of um, gestates. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere along the line, in in the country, it was sitting down with a guy by the name of Ken Ely, and him telling me about how he went to war when they ran over his blue tick coonhound. 
okay, um, with the gas company, okay, within um, betting the farm. It was that conversation with uh, Ethan, okay, <laughs> sitting in his uh, sitting in his workshop outside his barn, okay, mm-hmm. where we talked about everything, okay. Then um, in uh, a thirsty land, it was stumbling into uh, Haskell's um, office in uh, Bay City. Okay, mm-hmm. and expecting to be lectured to because I had been warned that he would lecture me mm-hmm. until I noticed that there was behind his head a copy of Aiden Steinsalt's translation of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. And, and when I asked him about the Talmud and we started discussing Talmud and it led me to the whole history of this Russian Jewish immigrant into this field that never would have been told otherwise. Right. In every one of those cases, when I walked out, I went. There it is. That's the book. And from there, all the other ideas just sort of intersect in that one in that one incident. And you know where you're going. That actually. okay. so this is a good point to segue into Ethan. Um, One of the things that really struck me about that chapter and it's and it's your persona. And I think it has a lot of relevance in the in the world that we're living in right now is you have this ability you know, as someone from the South, you'd just be considered one of those, you know, Northern Yankee liberal types uh, who may be a little bit more crustier than others. Um, but you've got this ability to sit down with somebody who may have a polar opposite outlook on life. And you guys can find and you have the ability to have a conversation and find common ground with them, which is, I would imagine what a lot of um, we need a lot more of in this world. Hey, how did? What are your thoughts first? I think there's a lot more of it than you than you might think. What's that? Yeah. So first, tell us tell everybody about Ethan Cox because they don't. I don't. <laughs> well, Ethan, I, Ethan was a guy. I, some local farm journal had written a story about some of the stuff that he was doing, and what had happened is he had made it through. Um, Two back-to-back years of devastating flooding. Okay, this is a guy who had never been off his farm except for once when he was a kid. He'd been out to New Mexico. He'd never been more than a few miles from the farm in his entire life because the cows wouldn't let him go. And he was doing a lot of corn, and he was doing uh, doing doing a lot of beef, but he was doing a lot of corn. And two years back-to-back. Um, he was um, he was flooded out, okay, and very nearly he was he was on the balls of his youth, and I guess it was uh, was it two thousand and twelve, mm-hmm. two thousand and twelve. Um, <clears throat> he noticed that um, things hadn't frozen up the way they usually do, and. He read that as a uh, a harbinger of a drought year, and he figured that um, if he planted early, if he planted like a month early, um, he might be able to bring the corn in before the worst of the drought hit, and thereby um, save the farm. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. The problem was that the bean counters um, who do crop insurance don't like it when you uh, vary from the norm. And so if he planted a month early, they weren't going to give him any coverage at all. Uh, they weren't going to give him any crop insurance at all. So if he was going to do this, if he was going to rely on his instincts. Now, this is a guy who is not ideologically, politically, um, religiously, frankly, mm-hmm. predisposed to believe in anthropogenic global climate change, but who is looking at it and rising to the challenge nonetheless. Um, and he just calls it farming. I mean, that's all he calls it. Right. But he was literally betting the farm that there was going to be a drought, okay? Because if he was wrong, he'd lose everything. If he was wrong, he'd lose everything, okay? Um, Now, here's the deal, okay? I'm not going to tell your your students whether or not he bet right, Mm -hmm. okay? They're going to have to read the book to figure that out, all right? But I will tell you this. I will tell you that I needed to talk to him, and he did not want to talk to me in the worst way. He didn't want to talk to me at all because, as he told his daughter, who had literally quit her job and moved back to the farm so she could farm with her dad and be with him on this this big bet, um, he'd never met a liberal before. He'd never met a liberal. And they, where would he meet one? I mean, there, there, there aren't any in Whitehall, Illinois. Okay. He didn't want to talk to me, but she eventually talked to me to it. Okay. And I will tell you that the minute we sat down, the minute we sat down, and I come in and you sit down, have a cup of coffee with him, we go out to the workshop, and the minute we sat down, I felt just an affinity for the guy. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, he may have been farming a lot more than, than we farmed growing up, but he was doing the same things that the, the, the old guys in my neighborhood used to do, you know? And so we ended up in conversations about that, and the conversation just drifted, and the conversation just drifted. Now, the other thing, I didn't do this on purpose, but Ethan had had a heart attack, uh, I guess, about three or four years before, Mm -hmm. and had to quit smoking. And he was just thrilled, absolutely thrilled that I would be smoking in his presence so he could at least smell it. <laughs> he would like breathe deep every time I roll one. <laughs> but we just hit it off, you know, and, and, and it was the same. It, it, it's always that there's always something you have in common. There's always something you have in common. And you start there. You know, and in that we talked, we talked about abortion, okay, and we talked about uh, well, we talked about Second Amendment rights, and we we talked about same-sex marriage, and we were on opposite ends of the spectrum, ideologically, mm-hmm. in every one of those issues. But when you turned around and started talking about people you knew who had been touched by those issues. Mm-hmm. Their own responsibility in those kinds of things. These two old white guys from opposite ends of the political spectrum really have a lot more shared values than we have differences. 
It's really a difference in approach. And as I said, and he ended up agreeing, you know, we talked about literally every major hot button issue in the culture at that point. Mm -hmm. Okay. And about 85% of the time when it came down to the personal, we agreed. It was maybe 10% where we disagreed and that was policy. Mm -hmm. But we could see where each other was coming. There was, all, it was about 5% where, you know, he thought I was nuts and I thought he was nuts. But we could set those aside, particularly in that kind of environment. And I said to him, I said, so why is it, Ethan, okay, that when you hear people talking about me and I hear people talking about you, the only thing they ever talk about is that 5%. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what we were talking about before. Because there's an industry that's grown up to exploit and commoditize those differences and the rage and the victimhood that are part of this. Yeah, they, they, as long as you can yeah. turn around and steer it. Now, it's more difficult to do that now. Okay, it's more difficult to do that now, um, partially because we're in an election cycle, but also because it has reached, as we began talking about, this point where it's all coming at once, where it's all coming at once, and we're in the cacophony, we're in the throes of the storm, we're in the, we're, we're, we're in the teeth of the hurricane. Do you think it's easy? Do you think it's easier to buy into a caricature of who someone is? While you're in the middle of trauma, like if you're in the if you're in the middle of this sort of oh, traumatic world, Absolutely. it's easier for me to, to put a label on you, and that just boxes you there. And I don't, I don't, I can do away with nuance. Well, absolutely, but it, it's not. It's partially during trauma, but it's also because of the complexity of the world. Mm -hmm. okay. We are wired when when you're in a in a traumatic situation, and I'm sure you you've you I'm sure you've had moments in your life that. Yet moments of, of, of pure white knuckle terror mm -hmm. in your life, things become very black and white. Mm -hmm. Things become very black and white. They become they be, they become silhouettes and caricatures of themselves mm -hmm. in times of immense stress. That is true. Okay, but the other thing, the thing that I think complicates it somewhat is that we live in a world that is maddening complex. We live in a world that is. Um, Things are, 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 are complicated and, and, and technologically sophisticated and connected very often in ways that we can't immediately suss out. And we are wired as human beings to look for the silver bullet, to look for the single, single unifying theory, okay? To look for the answer for everything. And that requires knocking off all the rough edges. That requires in, in in these kinds of situations, um, going to the who said of greatest magnitude and the who said of greatest magnitude to broadcast at the broadest depth mm -hmm. is going to turn around and present the simplest, most cartoonish image they possibly can. So it's not we. It, it, the problem is twofold. The problem is one: the complexity of the world that we live in, and that's going to take some doing. The other is that we are in a moment of crisis. And when you are in a moment of crisis, that natural instinct to simplify, to turn, to caricaturize, um, becomes amplified. 
We'll get through the moment of crisis. We will get through the moment of crisis. Then we have to address the underlying problem. And to be frank, I'm not sure how we do that, except through narrative. Except through narrative. Except through storytelling. One of the things that you do kind of on this topic, it, one of the big divides that I have simply I've witnessed is it's not right versus left. It's urban versus rural. Um, because I don't know, a lot of rural areas are afraid to go to urban areas. You're an hour and a half out of New York city. Um, mm -hmm. one of the things that you do, I think is really interesting is going back to the motorcycle is you, you know, I think you said on Facebook a while back when you, when you do book tours, you always do it on, a, you take your motorcycle. Mm -hmm. Why? I, I, I know why I would do it. Why do you do it? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. One, because I'm incredibly cheap. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so I end, I end up pitching a tent behind the Relax Inn in Arkansas. But um, that's one reason. Um, the other reason is that um, I... I I, I, everything I know, everything I know, I learned um, from talking to people. Mm -hmm. And I'm forced, okay, to talk to people. I'm forced to visit. I, I, this idea of a rural urban divide, mm -hmm. um, I think even that's an oversimplification. Okay. I mean, you go into certain neighborhoods of Brooklyn and Brooklyn. Okay. And the only thing that's different from certain neighborhoods in Mississippi is the accent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the same, the same cultural prejudices exist at the same time. Okay. There are places I've been in Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas. Okay. Um, where I've seen the kind of enlightenment mm -hmm. that, um, one would ordinarily ascribe to, you know, an affluent, uh, more urban environment. Okay. Um, I have seen the kind of poverty that I see in places like Camden. Mm -hmm. I've seen them in the Rio Grande Valley. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think this is an arbitrary distinction. I think this is an arbitrary distinction. Um, I think people do tend to buy into it. I think people in rural communities buy into it. Mm -hmm. I think people in urban communities buy into it. Okay. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily really legitimate. I think, again, in the same way that, uh, you know, a guy from Pennsylvania and uh, a farmer from Southern Illinois, um, on completely opposite ends of the political spectrum. We're able to find um, places where they overlap and agree. I think you find that too. There are class, cultural, economic problems that beset America's cities mm -hmm. that are a different genus of the same species of problems that affect with, they're part of Pennsylvania we refer to as Pennsylvania. Um, I live in the Appalachians, this whole kind of Appalachian ridge that runs down. Mm -hmm. um, it's a different genus, but the same species of poverty. 
um, and the, the, the representations of it, the, the manifestations of it um, are not that different. Okay. Mm -hmm. A certain kind of crime, certain kinds of violence, certain kinds of, uh, of, of addictions, mm -hmm. um, certain kinds of uh, educational issues. Certain kinds of emotional problems, certain kinds of psychological problems, certain kinds, certain kinds of, of, of domestic problems. Um, these are problems that have to do, they don't have to do with color. They don't have to do with geography. They have to do with class. They have to do with economics. Um, they have to do with opportunity. Ultimately, the response to them, I think, has to come there. The idea is that for so long, and I really, it's, it, there's, a, there's a history of this um, that really dates to, um, I think, the, the, the late 1960s, the, the, the Nixon era, mm -hmm. and then the Reagan era, and then to some degree the Clinton era, mm -hmm. um, where we began to locate this certain kinds of problems in the cities, certain kinds of issues in the rural communities. Um, they're really more similar than they are different. And I think the distinctions were frankly made for political purposes, mm -hmm. part of the industry that seeks to exploit um, problems mm -hmm. to turn around and, and grievances and divisions. I think there is more that unites us than divides us. Mm -hmm. And again, once we get through this crisis, um, I, I got to tell you, I have lived in in uh, some fairly tough urban areas, and I have spent a good portion of my life, as now, in rural areas. Um, I see a lot more similarities in the crises that both of those places face, then I see uh, differences. But I do see people turning around and trying to exploit those differences for um, very, very political ends. Let, let me let me shift to something else, kind of since you mentioned culture a little bit. A few years ago, eh, three or four years ago, first I went to uh, Scotland and Ireland. Well, I, I went to du I went to Dublin. You told me I didn't go to Ireland because I, I only went to. Yeah, Dublin. you didn't go to Ireland. You went to Dublin. Um, I realize, especially Scott, where the Vietnamese woman served you a full Irish breakfast in a place owned by a Greek. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, what I realized from that trip is I I don't think I fully appreciated the culture I grew up in, or not appreciated, understood the culture I grew up in until I went there, like. Until I spent a couple of weeks Absolutely. in Scotland, I didn't understand Arkansas mm -hmm. Ozark culture, and then it made sense. Mm -hmm. Like, and I was like, "Oh, right. these!" Like, it it was really obvious to me. These are the people that my people came from. Um, mm -hmm. Ireland is obviously really important to you. So, mm -hmm. what? Okay, as 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 you being you, why is Ireland still important? For a couple of reasons. Okay. One, because I am what I am. I am a product of, uh, I am a product to a very great extent of, of, of my family's history. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, if I have a facility with language, mm -hmm. 
It's because I was raised in a, in a culture that valued that. If I'm a bit of a contrarian, it's because I was raised in a culture that expected that. Okay. But it also, the difference between you and me is that I think we're different types of Irish. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, okay, is that I was raised in an Irish Catholic environment. Okay. Um, and that particular culture, once it, it took a very long time for it to um, assimilate, mm -hmm. but once it did, um, I, I, I always make the, the running joke is that, you know, people will turn around and say, you're white. I say, well, I'm Irish. We've only been white since Bing Crosby. Um, but <laughs> um, when we did assimilate, we became, um, frankly, um, as bad as any wasp. Mm-hmm. Okay, in terms of enforcing uh, a status quo. Visiting um, my family history um, reminds me of why I need to be. Um, more active in helping to bring into the tent people who are still viewed as being outsiders or second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. That's part of it, okay? That's an obligation, I think, of anybody who is an Irishman, mm -hmm. okay, or an Irish-American, to understand that, you know, hey, you know, my great-grandfather, when he came to this country, changed his name from McGrath, M-C-G-R-A-T-H, to the more Protestant-sounding M-C-G-R-A-W, because he thought that it would make things easier for him. It didn't. He still ended up hacking his goddamn lungs out of the mines. Okay. Um, it didn't make things any better for him at all. Because he was what he was. Mm -hmm. And he was seen as that. And we need to remember that that's not that far in our past. There's another reason, though, Bill. And this is as the storyteller in me. Okay. This is the writer in me. When my great-grandfather came over in a, it was an echo of the, uh, the, the first famine. It was a famine in the 1880s. And he came over under questionable circumstances at that time. I still can't get anybody on that side of the, uh, the ocean to explain to me exactly what he did. But um, it, it seems like they were all glad to have him gone. Um, that said, he never, ever, from what I understand, talked about the old country at all. At all. Okay, not word one. Except for one thing. He would talk about how um, when he was a kid, his mother um, would can vegetables that she grew in her garden, which was a feat in itself because this is a coastal area right up right near Black Sunday. Um, really inhospitable terrain. And she would can the vegetables that she would that she would grow, and she would sell them to the neighbors. And she got tired, as the story goes, of 
the the bog trotting neighbors bringing in you know mud into her home and so she had my great great grandfather build a little alcove at the uh the back of the house mm-hmm. and the woman was really short she was maybe five two and so the window had to be built really 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 low okay so she could hand this out and um my great-grandfather told my grandfather about this just that mm-hmm. nothing else just that my grandfather of course had never seen the place my grandfather told my father who had never seen the place mm-hmm. and my father told me and about 25 years ago i managed to find Pola Thomas in the most godforsaken corner of County Mayo. And I managed to find the house. And it's now, it's still in the, in, in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's now a cow barn. Okay. But I walked into it and it was exactly as he had described it. It was, I walked into this place I had never set foot in, never seen. And I knew every inch of it. The window was exactly where it had been handed down from three generations. So now, when each of my kids turned 13, mm-hmm. okay, I took them to Ireland. Okay. I took them to the cow bar. I told them the story and I showed them the place so that they can know that there are some stories that are true, even if you've never seen them. That this, just this, this fact in perfect representation managed to make it down three generations gives me great hope for the power of storytelling. Okay, to follow that question, that up. For the, the, the storytellers that are just beginning their journey, not so much technical information or but mindset information, like what, what advice would you give to a young storyteller as far as their soul and their mind and the way they should sort of approach the world? Be quiet. It's not your story. It's not your story. The best storytellers tell other people's stories. It's going to filter through your experience. Listen. Listen. Fill in those gaps. Fill in those fill in those spaces between the lines and the obits. Okay? By listening. The stories will tell themselves if you just get out of the way. You just have to get out of the way. Everybody's got a magnificent story. I have never met a person. You know, you asked about the bike. You know, when mm-hmm. I travel, I ride Triumphs, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And one of my Triumphs is, uh, it looks like an old, you know, it, it's not, but it looks like, you know, a 1960s Triumph Bonneville. And so every time I stop for gas, literally every time I stop for gas, some 75 or 80-year-old man, is going to walk up to me, okay, tell me about the triumph he had, 
Okay. Tell me how he met his wife on it. <laughs> Tell me about the, the these these remarkable nights he had on the tribe. Uh-huh. And I'm just going to listen. Okay. And I'm just going to listen. And every story I hear, even if I don't use it, uh-huh. is going to inform the way I hear the next story. Your job is just is simply to transmit the story. Okay. Your job is not to be the story. At some point, yeah, you're going to want to turn around and tell your own story. You're going to want to be your own character, but you're going to want to be your own character. You're going to want to tell your own story in service of somebody else's story. Ultimately, writing is a service profession. It's never about you. It's always about somebody else. Otherwise, it's just self-indulgent. There you go. Last thing. Anything that we didn't cover that you want to just talk about? Do you got any good stories? I, how long have we been doing this? <laughs> we are, we're about to eclipse the two-hour mark, but you know what? I, I don't care. <laughs> well, I'm frankly tired of hearing me. So, okay. <laughs> so all right. We'll just wrap it up. So, all right, Shane. Um Okay, then how, if somebody's listening to this and they want to know, follow your work, they want to follow you, how might they do that? Okay, I'm going to do the same thing I always do everywhere. All right. I'm Seamus Seamus McGraw on Facebook. I'm Seamus McGraw on Instagram. I'm Seamus uh, McGraw on Twitter. Uh, My email is seamusm at ptd.net. Um, and I'll tell you what, I'll even give you my, my, my home phone number. It's five, seven, Oh, five, eight, eight, six thousand. Um, like I say, these are like the books, these conversations are the beginnings of conversations. So anybody who wants to use me as a resource, feel free to use me as a resource. Anybody want to bounce a question off me in person, knock yourself out. I'm, I'm available all the time because I truly have no life. All right. Seamus, I certainly appreciate this conversation. I told you I've been looking forward to this. You did not disappoint. So thank you. All right. So we're going to wrap it up and, uh, and I'll probably post this next week. So, uh, so, all right. Have a wonderful day. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Come gather round people wherever you roam Admit that the waters around you have grown Except as soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming and you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing Come writers and critics Prophesy with your pen Keep your eyes wide The chance won't come again Don't speak too soon For the wheel's still in spin There's no telling who that it's naming For the loser Now will be later to win All the times they are changing Come mothers and fathers Throughout the land 
Don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your road is rapidly aging Oh, please get out of the new one if you can't lend a hand all the times they are changing Come Senator, Congressman, please hear the call Or stand in that hallway, don't block up the hall that gets hurt will be he who has stalled There's a battle outside and it's raging It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are changing The line it is drawn Curse it is cast Slow on now will later be fast As the present now will later be past The order is rapidly fading And the first one now will later be last All the times 